Hello, hello everybody and welcome back to my corner of the internet. I'm so grateful that you're choosing to spend this time with me today. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, however you came across this show, thank you for being here. If you learned something today, don't forget to share this episode with a friend and leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. Let me tell you right now why you should do this. It's easy, it's encouraging, and it fires me up. I'm putting the Apple Podcast link right at the top of my show notes today, so go do that right now. Go fire me up. For those of you who already have, and I'm talking to the Sanofskis right now, thank you so much. For my mom, who still hasn't left me a review. Well, I mean, you carried me in your womb for nine months and you raised me, so uh, I'm not going to say anything there. And jokes aside, for those of you who listen and that's it, thank you just for being here. I appreciate you too. Housekeeping aside, welcome back to the second part of our little double episode on working on yourself. I hope you learn or feel something today. I'm Francesca, and this is The View from My Soapbox. Last week we talked about what this actually means and what it doesn't mean to work on yourself. So if you missed that episode, be sure to go back and give it a listen. I want to highlight the fact that, as it turns out, I did a great job last week of embodying what I'm trying to teach. (laughs) I was talking about how perfection is unattainable, and I supported that analysis with a Tony Robbins quote that I hadn't planned, it just came to mind, and I got it completely backwards. To be clear, what he did say is that 5% of life is what happens, and 95% is how you react, which is really deep, not the other way around. I think my point still came across, but when I was listening to the podcast after publishing it, I was kicking myself. But then I thought, didn't I just record a whole episode about how you can't expect yourself to be perfect? Guys, I am neck deep in this shit too. If I get really heated while I'm recorded, you know, it's probably because I know I need to hear this more than anyone. Whew, vulnerability is awful. (laughs) Okay. Anyways, this week is going to be a little more actionable. My goal is that you leave with at least one strategy you can take home and work on. If that's the case, let me know and we can compare notes. I'm really passionate about this topic for many reasons. Firstly, in case you haven't noticed, we're in the midst of a mental health pandemic. Add a regular pandemic on top of that and it's a crisis. People don't know how to talk about mental health. We don't have access to the support we need. Medical professionals don't have sufficient training in handling mental illness. And the justice system is shockingly ineffective in its approach to mental illness. If you want to be fired up right now, look up the rates of traumatic brain injury among prison populations. Do you realize what brain injury does to you? Do you want to try to not violate parole when the long-term effects of TBIs include distraction, memory loss, and permanent mood and personality changes? Anyways, that's a tangent. I could really go off on that. What I'm really getting at is the simple reality that our world is set up for neurotypical people. And when at any given year in Canada, one in five people struggle with a mental illness, according to the CMHA, this is ridiculous. I mean, by the time we're 40, half of us will have had a mental illness. Half. We need systems and attitudes that leave nobody behind. Not the disabled, not people of color, not women, not fat people, not the mentally ill. As long as this is the reality, the onus for finding a solution is not completely on us as individuals struggling with mental illness. We really need systemic change, political action, education, and dialogue. But that doesn't mean we're powerless. That doesn't mean we need to await this change in paralysis and helplessness. There is so much that we can do to help ourselves, and it begins with realizing we need help. 
This is a well-known truth. The first step in solving a problem is acknowledging that the problem exists. And coming to terms with this is difficult when we minimize our struggles, and worse, when society normalizes them. An example that's really close to home for me is how university students normalized chronic stress, sleep deprivation, alcoholism, and eating disorders. There are so many more, but those are four of the big ones that I notice everywhere. I've talked about this in a past episode, but we wear our stress like a badge of honor, when in reality, being stressed out all the time can have catastrophic implications for our mental and physical health, from cardiovascular disease to serious immune deficiencies. I don't want to get too sidetracked, but the main reason is that our body's response to stress involves the release of cortisol, and there's nothing wrong with this for a short amount of time. For example, if you're stressed out because you're running away from a lion, or if you're walking into a high-stakes audition, cortisol is actually really helpful. But nowadays, we overuse the stress response for things like school and work that are chronic and last for long periods of time, where this response is biologically inappropriate and physically damaging. More on this in the show notes. Next, we talk as though sleep is something that you can trade for doing well on an exam at a critical stage of our brain's development, when in reality, sleep is necessary for consolidating the memory of everything you just stayed up all night to learn, among a million other things. And we say trite nonsense, like, it's not alcoholism until you graduate. And we believe that the face of alcoholism is the 40-year-old man in a wife-beater shirt, but the reality is that half the people around us on campus would meet the diagnostic criteria for alcohol use disorder. That's not a statistic, that's me talking off my head, but I know you know what I'm talking about. And finally, eating disorders, which I'll add are the deadliest mental illness, are incredibly common on campus. Raise your hand if you skipped a meal today and low-key felt proud. Raise your hand if you were terrified of quote-unquote freshman 15 when you were a freshman. Raise your hand if you fast before a night out drinking so that you'll save money on drinks. Raise your hand if you've pulled trig the last time you got drunk. Raise your hand if you're frugal and don't buy healthy food like, um, vegetables. Ever. Raise your hand- okay, okay, you get it. All this is without even touching on the effects of the pandemic and online school, on depression, the impact of hookup culture on our trust, intimacy, and self-worth, the sexual assault, sexual manipulations, and coercion that's happening to our friends, by our friends, or that we've experienced ourselves. I mean, I really could go on. As reluctant as we may be to admit it, we have a problem. And it's hard to acknowledge we've got a problem when our problem feels more like a given when you're a busy university student, or a young professional, or a mom, or a CEO, or a shift worker, or truly anyone. Our brains are evidence-seeking, not truth-seeking. And that's why it's so easy for us to explain away a serious issue when we are frightened to face it. But we've got to face it with open hearts if it's ever going to get better. Don't you want to feel better? Don't you want to feel like yourself again? To make your six-year-old self proud? To, to show up for the people in your life? Often the desire to work on ourselves and our problems arises from wanting to be a better friend, partner, father, you name it. And that's a start. But you know what? You have so much intrinsic value that you are worth getting better just for yourself. Feeling happy in your own head is worth it. Getting through the day without suffering is worth it. Giving your body the food and the rest and the play it needs is worth it. You are worth it. I don't know how many of you needed to hear that today. And if you were already doing okay, that's fantastic. But I'll bet anything that someone you love could really use that reminder today. 
I'll bet anything you wish you knew what to say to them. How to help. I can't answer all these questions for you. I definitely can't make you love yourself, either, because that's a work in progress over here, too. But I've learned some things that have really helped me, and today I want to share some of them with you. Okay, so you've realized that you need and are worthy of help, and you're ready to put some energy and time into getting better. Where do you start? There's no right answer to that, because there's no such thing as one-size-fits-all treatment, and I don't know you any better than you do. But a great starting point for me was writing down my thoughts. And I'm not talking about podcasting, I'm talking about writing down in a journal, on a napkin, in my iPhone notes, whatever I'm thinking and feeling at that moment. As a person, I'm naturally drawn to self-expression, but even for people who don't see themselves that way, journaling can be a powerful tool to reduce chronic stress, and as we've discussed, chronic stress is a major predictor of negative health outcomes. It can help you manage anxiety, understand your priorities, identify maladaptive thinking patterns, track your mental health progress, and remember to be grateful. I don't think it's a coincidence that gratitude rhymes with platitude, but everything that your mom, pastor, and first-year psych prof told you was true. You've got to be grateful, man. That's really all there is to it. Journaling helps with getting out of your head and looking at your thoughts and feelings as something outside of you, not as integral parts of who you are. It's like the difference between saying, I'm sad, and saying, I'm feeling sad. Saying that you're feeling sad separates you from the sadness rather than merging you with it. Similarly, writing down I'm feeling sad in your journal lets you see it there on the page, below last week's entry where you had totally different things on your mind, and above an empty space on the page that you'll fill tomorrow or next year with totally different thoughts and feelings. It lets you take space from whatever it is that's going on inside your head so that you see those things as just things, just thoughts that you're having not thoughts that you are. Getting it out on paper, to me, is a way to make room for other things to fill my head. I'll think, okay, I've got my worries out, they're out there for me to see, now my brain can move on to evaluating them, evaluating whether or not they're actually worth my energy, and more importantly, evaluating what I'm going to do about them. Rather than sitting and thinking those painful thoughts all by yourself and fighting them or ruminating over them, Journaling helps you see past the current difficulty to the bigger picture, like zooming out. What am I feeling? Why am I feeling it? Is this feeling helpful? And what am I going to do about it? Part of this, too, is getting precise with what it is you're feeling. When you have a shitty feeling, you can choose to numb it, as you normally do, whether for you that's Netflix, alcohol, scrolling, schoolwork, that's a big one for me. Or you can choose to acknowledge the feeling and do something about it. Journaling helps you identify exactly what you're feeling, and if you're willing to do the reflection and get specific, you'll get so much more clarity about what you actually need to do about that. Do you need to call your friend? Do you need time alone? Do you need to take responsibility for something that you did that's holding you back, or do you need to apologize to anyone? Do you need to drop a class? Do you need to set boundaries with someone? Do you need to go see your doctor? Do you just need to have something to eat and get a good night's rest? I mean, you can only answer these questions once you've gotten specific about what it is you need help with. And journaling helps with this because sometimes what comes out while you're writing can point you in the direction of what it is you've been ignoring. Some other things that can help include talking through what you're feeling with someone who's earned your story, stretching your body, or taking a shower. But my favorite by far is journaling. To get you going, here are some prompts that I recommend as starting points. Number one. What would a win look like for you right now? Number two, 
where are you spending your energy these days? Where do you want to be spending your energy? Number three, what's one thing your six-year-old self would be proud of you for right now? Number four, in a few short sentences, describe a snapshot from a day in your life 10 years from now. Repeat a couple times for different versions of your life. Number five, what do you value in life? And number six, what do you value in a person? And how many people in your life right now live up to these values? And another thing about journaling, don't think about it as yet another thing on your to-do list. If you don't feel like it, if you're forcing it, if thinking about how you haven't journaled in forever is adding to your stress, fuck that. Journal when you feel you need it. Journal when you have something to say, something you need to get off your chest. Journal when you want to connect with yourself, not because it's something that some chick on a podcast told you to do. If this is something that you want to do, no, if anything is something that you want to do, you will make time for it. So, journaling is a great place to start. What else? Well, this is certainly related, but research in the past few years has built a significant body of evidence suggesting that mindfulness can work wonders on our mental health. Being mindful means intentionally bringing your awareness to the present moment, the physical sensations in your body, your breathing, your surroundings, all in a non-judgmental manner. It's basically clearing your mind of all of the thoughts and distractions spinning around in there so you can be grounded in what's actually happening rather than thinking about things beyond the present moment that you probably can't control anyways. Mindfulness has been used to treat depression, anxiety, stress, and drug addiction, and it's been linked to positive psychological health outcomes. People have been doing this for hundreds and hundreds of years, particularly in the East. This is a bit of a random fact, but I think it's kind of interesting. Mindfulness as we know it in the Western world is based on the Buddhist notion of sati, which basically means moment-to-moment -moment awareness of present events, or remembering to be aware of something. And it's one of the seven factors of Buddhist enlightenment. Anyways, I'm definitely no Buddhist. I just thought that was really cool. I think the Western world could learn a lot from the East, particularly when it comes to old wisdom and systems of ethics. Anyways, the thing that I find most interesting about mindfulness is how it actually works in your brain. And we're going to get a little sciencey for a second. The following information comes from the Oxford Mindfulness Center's Mark Williams, an emeritus professor of clinical psychology at the University of Oxford. In an interesting video I've linked in the show notes, he describes the way that your brain actually changes when you experience mindfulness. Your insula, which is a part of the neocortex and is associated with empathy and experiencing your body, actually begins to uncouple from the ventromedial prefrontal cortex, which is associated with language, images, and the ability to generate a story about yourself. The fact that these two parts of the brain are uncoupling suggests that in a state of mindfulness, you're able to activate compassion sectors without activating the stories that come with it, which can trigger overthinking and rumination and can prevent you from being able to see solutions to your problems. Further, Dr. David Cresswell's research found a lack of mindfulness is associated with chronic overactivity of the amygdala, which is definitely my least favorite part of the brain, and it drives the fight-or-flight response. This suggests that practicing mindfulness makes you less likely to experience the stress associated with the fight-or-flight response, less likely to respond to your own negative thinking, and less likely to suffer from the stress-related negative health outcomes. This is a really rough explanation of why mindfulness practice in trials that have been replicated many times worldwide has been shown to treat depression as well as antidepressant medication. Isn't that crazy? 
if it treats depression as well as antidepressants. Anyways, you better look into this yourself if you're interested, but I thought that that was a good way to, you know, get your toes wet. Okay, I'm probably going to delete that. To be honest, I find mindfulness really tricky. I've tried meditation. I definitely find it challenging. And I'm pretty crap at sati right now because I never remember to be aware. It takes real effort. It's so much easier to just walk around your day thinking about what you're going to have for dinner that night. When you're going to do your laundry next. All the assignments you still have to do. (laughs) So maybe I'm going to talk about this more in future episodes when I'm a little bit more enlightened. For now, though, I've linked in the show notes a really great podcast about mindfulness. It's the 10% Happier podcast with Dan Harris. And the reason I'm sharing this is not because it's sponsored, I'm not there yet, but because there are a bunch of free and really soothing meditations. They're usually about 10 minutes long, and they're my go-to when I have a hard time winding down before bed. Yeah, I wish I was getting paid to say this, but no, honestly, check them out if you're interested because it's helped me a lot. I don't need to be a Zen Buddhist, though, to tell you that not everything about mindfulness is challenging. One aspect of mindfulness that I think is really important is being mindful of your own toxic patterns and behaviors. In other words, being self-aware, right? It's noticing the behaviors you're engaging in when you're engaging in them. Some key examples that come to mind for me are behaviors like complaining, gossiping, and comparing yourself to other people. Everyone does this to different extents, and in an earlier episode about comparison versus compassion, I talked about why comparison is so bad for us, and how you can change the specific patterns of thought that lead us to comparing ourselves to other people. So if you haven't already, and if you're interested, go back and check that out. Gossiping is honestly not so different. Using the shame of other people as fodder for our entertainment, or as a way of lifting ourselves up, is toxic not just because it hurts other people, which is obvious, not just because it's a waste of time, but also because it makes things a hundred times worse for you the next time you have a shaming experience. If you spend all your social time talking about other people, you've probably got a crippling fear of being talked about by other people, too, because you think other people are as judgmental as you are. It's a vicious cycle. You judge other people, so you expect them to judge you just as harshly, which makes you afraid of their judgment, and you cope with this fear by tripping on the perceived power you feel when you judge others. You know how to break this cycle? It's one application of self-awareness. You're judging others as harshly as you're judging yourself. Develop compassionate self-awareness in those moments where you're judging others or yourself. Be gentle with yourself, be gentle with others, and look for people who are gentle with you and with themselves too. The opinion of everybody else does not matter in the slightest. Value the opinions of people who value the right things. It sounds harsh when I say become aware of how you're toxic. I want to expand on this a little bit. Toxicity is a spectrum, not a label, even though we really use it as a label nowadays. We say, that girl's toxic, this relationship is toxic, etc. Like it's some all-or-nothing objective quality. This is not the case. We all do toxic things sometimes, and people who behave this way all the time aren't necessarily horrible human beings who deserve to be alone forever. They need help more than anyone, and they're probably suffering more than anyone. Toxicity isn't a label we should slap onto persons, when in reality it's a way of describing a person's behavior. You are not toxic. Your behavior right now is toxic. And I think the three most common, under-the-radar toxic behaviors that we love to explain away are complaining, gossiping, and comparing. 
if you want to fight this, don't start with calling out your friends when you catch them doing it. That's too easy. Start by becoming self-aware when you catch yourself doing it. And actively try to switch gears. This is the hardest part because self-awareness takes time, and it can be really shaming. But if you're willing to make mistakes, if you're willing to let other people hold you accountable, and if you're willing to move through these mistakes with compassion and steadfastness, it'll show. I promise. Okay, so self-awareness, or being mindful of your own toxicity, is another good place to start the work on yourself, as well as journaling. But these, these strategies, they're kind of general. If you want to kick it up a notch, you've got to think about therapy. There it is. Therapy. The T word. Why are we so afraid of this? Why do we think it's more shameful to see a therapist than to treat other people in your life as therapists? <laughs> because in my opinion, we all kind of do therapy in our own way, whether it's effective or not. We all have an outlet for our frustrations and a source of advice that we like to draw on. For example, I know someone who categorically refuses to talk to a therapist, but every Sunday he hangs on to every word the preacher says in the sermon and applies those messages to his real-life problems. For him, that's therapy. And I think we all know that person who thinks therapy would be a waste of time, but who every time you get together unloads all of their feelings and problems onto you and enlists your help in overanalyzing all their baggage. I think that as complex, feeling creatures, we've got an innate need for the support of other people when it comes to navigating our emotional lives. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. In fact, that is so much better than bottling up your emotions, which is really just kicking the can down the road, and it sets you up for a nice, bangin' midlife crisis. I've heard it said so many times, and I agree, that you've got to handle your feelings or else they'll handle you. The thing is, though, that even though there are so many ways to handle those feelings, not all of them are equally effective. Drowning and numbing your worries? Easy, but not very effective. Expecting your friends to be your unpaid therapy team? Effective, but damaging to your friends and damaging to your friendships. Paying somebody who's educated and trained to help, and has helped tons of people with problems just like yours, to sit for an hour with you once in a while and try to help you sort through your shit? Time-consuming, potentially expensive if you don't have good insurance, but by far the most effective strategy. It's like an investment that pays a 25% dividend. If that metaphor doesn't speak to you, try this one. Therapy is like lube for your social life. It's like flossing for your mental health. And it's really no different than taking a trip to the ER when you've broken your leg, or going to the doctors for a checkup every so often. Your mental health is at least as important as your physical health, and I stand by that statement 100%. And if you can't afford therapy, there are plenty of other ways to educate yourself about this that can help you as well. There are tons of incredible books out there to try to help yourself. I've included some of them in the show notes, but my top two recommendations are The Happiness Hypothesis by Jonathan Haidt and any one of Brene Brown's books. God, I love that woman. <laughs> there are also tons of online resources, like Therapy Assistance Online, which is free for a lot of students. There's also YouTube channels that talk about psychology and mental health, and I've linked a couple of my favorites, too. And finally, the obvious one, podcasts. Honestly, that's a big part of why I started this show. I've been learning so much lately, and I want to help connect other people to these transformative ideas, too. If you're listening to this, chances are you're already on board with podcasts, but 
they can be a really great way to learn outside of class, just for fun and growth, and learn about whatever the heck you're interested in. Podcasts are what got me really into psychology, for example. And you actually have no excuses now, because I linked so many great resources in the show notes, so you're welcome, and go check them out. All these different strategies are free, and they're accessible. You just have to put in the time. The way that I like to see these things is as supplements to the work that I do in therapy. If you're reading an amazing book that gives you one Oprah moment after the other, it can be really helpful to talk through these realizations in therapy with a professional so that you can really digest them and apply them to your life. If you don't already believe this, it might sound a little crazy, but I actually think everyone should be in therapy. Because if you find the right person, it's incredible how much they can help you, even when you're doing fine. I say this all the time, but understanding how you think and why you think that way can help you overcome all of the limitations you impose on yourself. And certainly, there are plenty of people who don't have a mental illness and who feel fine most of the time. But going back to last week's topic of perfectionism, I don't think there's any such thing as perfect mental health, perfect happiness, a perfect inner life. I think we're all on the same struggle bus of humanity, but some of us are just sitting further back than others. So where do you start with therapy? If you're a student, it's a good idea to check out your student wellness center. Usually schools hire their own counselors that you can book appointments with directly free of charge. The waiting list is usually long for these appointments because guess what? We're in a mental health crisis. Everybody's stressed out and there's a serious shortage of licensed therapists and counselors. But hey, once the wait is over, it's worth a shot. You can also see if anything's included under your health insurance plan. Sometimes there are things like employee assistance programs that let you access a certain number of therapy or counseling sessions when you're facing a work-related or personal problem. In this COVID world, most appointments are either over the phone or over Zoom, but just talking to someone can still be incredibly effective. And finally, often the most straightforward way to get help is to go to your GP, your doctor, and tell them what's going on. From there, they can assess your needs, they can make a referral to either a psychologist, a psychiatrist for medication, or various group programs that are offered, depending on what you're struggling with. It's not always easy to have these conversations. It's freaking hard saying that you need help. But it's the brave thing to do, and I think it's one of the quickest ways to affirm to yourself that you're worthy of getting better. There are so many valid reasons to start therapy. It took me a really long time to admit to myself I needed help, but I'm so grateful that I did when I did. You want to know what really changed my mind? I thought to myself, you know, I definitely can keep struggling through. I can function. And things are fine on the surface. But I want more than that. I want to have children. And when I'm a mother and I'm looking into my daughter's eyes and she's going through something... She's having a hard time loving herself, she's just had her heart broken, she's starting to feel the weight of the world's expectations on her. Man, I want to know what to say to her. I want to have tools that I can share with her. I want to be able to hold her and say, I know you feel lost, and I know it hurts, but you can get through this, and I can help you if you want. I want to work on myself now, so that by the time I have kids, they can grow up knowing what it looks like for a strong, successful woman to love herself, to love her life, and to know how to ask for help. I know that I will never have all the answers, but by the time I'm a mother, I want to have at least some.
Okay, I want to come back to the idea we talked about last week, that there is no destination to working on yourself. Is this cause for desperation? Does this mean that the whole affair is pointless? Far from it. Working on yourself, whether for you that's spending time outside, journaling, gathering the courage to take a risk that you wanted to take for a long time, setting boundaries with people, learning to meditate, or starting therapy, whatever it is for you right now, yes, it can feel like a massive struggle. It can feel like a mountain you're trying to climb as quickly as possible just to get to the top. But it doesn't have to feel that way. I've talked about it before, but one of my favorite metaphors, or I guess you could see it as an allegory, is of the mountain climber who uses the top of the mountain as an excuse to go climbing. Because the climbing itself is where the joy is for her. Be like that mountain climber. Use your goals as an excuse to go chase them, to go on that journey with yourself. My favorite part of this work is the constant learning. If you can approach your own personal growth with curiosity, curiosity about who you are and what you'll find out and and what the future has in store for you, I promise that this is some of the most rewarding, fascinating, and enthralling work that there is. Learn to lean into the confusion when you hit a wall. Learn to celebrate what Oprah calls the aha moments when you do have a breakthrough, no matter how small. Learn how to take the time to reset and digest what you're learning. Don't rush. Share this stuff with people who have earned your story. You'll attract people who are also working on themselves, who also see themselves as students of life and works in progress. I heard this quote the other day. If you can't pursue it with joy, it won't bring you joy when you get it. Always follow your bliss. I love that, guys. We were not given this life to struggle through it. We're meant to joyfully and curiously follow our intuition and pursue our fullest selves. As Oprah says, everyone is seeking the same thing. To fulfill the highest, truest expression of themselves as a human being. Go forth and fulfill, everybody. (laughs) Thanks again for joining me today. I hope you found some comfort in what I had to say. If you need a breather after these back-to-back long-ass episodes, I recommend you go listen to Taylor Swift's re-release of 15. That is the closest thing to therapy without going to therapy. I've been listening to that and rereading Harry Potter lately, and it's just been pure joy. One last thing. It's been a while since I mentioned this on the show, but part of the reason why I started this podcast was because I believe in encouraging diversity of opinion, and I really value the ability to hold space for disagreement. I don't want you to agree with everything I say. In fact, I'd love to hear all the ways you disagree with me. So you can find me on Instagram. I've linked in the show notes finally because why the heck not? And as always, you can shoot me an email. I would love to hear your thoughts on anything I've said today or in past episodes. For instance, do you agree that everyone should be in therapy? Do you agree that behaviors, not people, are toxic? Do you think that our culture tends to normalize mental illness in a harmful way, or do you think that it's healthy to bond over our shared struggles? I adore hearing your opinions on this. Please keep them coming. That is all I've got for you today. Until next week, be gentle with yourself, always salt your pasta water, and do not forget to enjoy your life.